Military leadership. Many talk about it, write about it, but what makes a leader great? Is leadership innate? Is it learned, or does it exist in some unique combination of the innate and learned in all great leaders? To try to answer these questions, the MacArthur Memorial Leadership Podcast series will explore the education, personality, abilities, and legacies of great military leaders and the institutions and times that produced them. The following is an interview with U.S. Army Captain Mark Ellers about General Robert E. Lee. Captain Ellers has served as a platoon leader in Iraq and as a company commander at Fort Bliss, Texas. At the time of this interview, he is currently serving as an instructor in American history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Today we are with Captain Ellers, an instructor at West Point, and we're going to be talking about Robert E. Lee today as part of our leadership series. Captain Ellers, can you describe West Point during the time that Lee is a student here? Lee enters West Point in 1825, and a very good historian has described it as a military monastery, and I think that's a very good way of uh, describing it. It's not a very impressive area at this time. There's only a, a few buildings. There's one cadet barracks. There's another building that serves as the library, has a chapel in it, and then there's a building or two for classrooms. So it's not very big. At the time Lee is here, he is under the father of the academy, Sylvanus Thayer, is still the superintendent, and so the cadets are, are still working under the very strict regiment that Thayer put into place back in uh, 1817. It's a very regimented life. They get up in the morning, study, they go to breakfast, they study more, they go to classrooms. In the classrooms, they learn by what's called the, the Thayer method. They're supposed to do their work ahead of time. They get called on. They come up to the board. They're presented a problem. They work out the problem, and then they go back and, and sit down. It's very much learning by rote. And Lee absolutely thrives in this environment. At this time at the academy, everything is geared towards engineering. This is the premier engineering school in the United States, uh, all the way up through the, the middle of the 19th century. And so all the classes are geared towards engineering. And he takes uh, math of various kinds. He takes physics. He takes drawing. And the drawing is not for self-expression or something like that. It's to practice mechanical drawing so you can better do engineering work. There's very little teaching in the way of leading soldiers, in the, in, in the ways of tactics, uh, things of that nature, in 1825. He does take one uh, sort of catch-all class that covers uh, everything from history to geography to ethics and law in his last, uh, his last year at the academy. But that's really all the training he gets on actually leading soldiers. Uh, you go to West Point at that time to learn engineering, and that's what he does. And he excels very much at that. He graduates second in his class of 1829 of uh, 46 cadets. And the big story is that uh, you know, he graduates with, with zero demerits. Uh, cadets accumulate demerits for anything from missing class to not having their bed sheets folded correctly. Lee manages to graduate without any demerits over four years. However, uh, there is a caveat to that. There are several, several other people in the class of 1829 who also graduate with zero demerits. Um, so maybe it's not as great of achievement as we, as we might like to think, but it is certainly an achievement. He definitely makes an impression on his, on his classmates. Say he actually acquires probably one of his, his first nicknames here. They call him the Marble Model. It's not entirely, I, I think, affectionate, 
at times his classmates were very annoyed that he did everything so perfectly. So he does acquire this, this reputation as the person that tries to do everything perfect. It's not just, you know, one of, one of the guys. Uh, he does meet a, a few friends here. Most notably, uh, Joseph Johnson is going to be one of his friends throughout his Army career, and he will continue to have a relationship with him throughout the rest of his life. Uh, Jefferson Davis uh, will eventually become the, the president of the Confederacy, is actually in the class right ahead of Lee, so they did know each other at, at West Point. I'm not entirely sure how much they interacted, but they certainly knew of each other. So all in all, West Point really impresses upon Lee, or allows Lee to really excel in, this, in, in discipline and learning engineering skills that will help him eventually in his Army career, because at this point, in fact still today, cadets choose a branch of service at the end of their time here. And in 1829, all the best cadets, uh, all the ones who scored best on their final tests, wanted to be in the engineers. And as the second in his class, Lee certainly qualifies as one of the best cadets, and he picks the engineers. And so in 1829, he graduates from West Point and becomes a second lieutenant in the uh, engineering. So obviously he stands out. You know, they've got that nickname for him. They talk about people like Pershing while he was at the academy many years later, and they say, you know, he's marked for leadership or something bigger. Would you say that that's the same for Lee? I think that would be fair to say. Most of the writings we have about Lee come from after his time at West Point, so we have to be careful that they're not looking back from after the Civil War and saying, hey, I knew Lee back then, and boy, we, I knew he was marked for greatness. Although the, the few writings we do have about him while he is at West Point, he certainly makes a, a great impression on his classmates as that cadet who wants to do everything so perfectly that it demonstrates that discipline that, that allows him to do so well here. How would you say that West Point really prepares him for his early, early career? Well, it's, it, uh, it's an engineering school. Uh, it's the premier engineering school in the United States of America, and Lee becomes an engineer. He uh, spends his early career uh, down on the South Atlantic coast, planning uh, seacoast fortifications down there. The famous one is Fort Pulaski. He also is out doing civil engineering out in St. Louis area. He actually helps uh, divert the course in the Mississippi River, which helps St. Louis become a, a important uh, port city. So the, the, this engineering that he learns at West Point really translates very well to his initial Army career. He actually goes to Mexico on the staff of, of Winfield Scott, and I think that's actually that's fundamental to his career. Time at West Point really doesn't prepare him for that, but he finds that he really thrives in, in a combat environment. He serves on the staff of Winfield Scott as his chief engineer, and at that time, engineers were expected to do reconnaissance and to understand terrain, and Lee absolutely excels at this. He serves at Veracruz, and he places artillery that helped in the siege of Veracruz, at the Battle of Cerro Gordo and uh, Cherubuso and Contreras and battles around Mexico City, he helps move troops into position so that they can outflank the, uh, the Mexican defenses. Winfield Scott speaks very highly of him, and Robert E. Lee learns a lot from Winfield Scott as well. He learns in this Mexico City campaign where Scott essentially cuts himself off from the coast of Mexico. He lands at Veracruz, marches to Mexico City without any kind of supply line, uh, he has an, a, a smaller force than the Mexicans. It's really a audacious campaign, and Lee, I think, very much picks up on this. What he learns about tactics, he doesn't learn at West Point. He learns during the Mexican War from Winfield Scott. He learns the value of outflanking positions. He learns the value of audacious campaigns in enemy country, potentially providing very great results. 
and he also learns that at times frontal assaults work. Uh, you know, when the, then the Americans are, are storming the uh, last uh, Mexico City strongholds at uh, Chapultepec. Uh, they just go straight up over the fortifications, and uh, these frontal assaults work, and Robert E. Lee picks up on that. Uh, so what he learns about tactics, he really learns in, in, the, in the Mexican War. For the first time during the Mexican War, we see all these junior officers like Robert E. Lee, like Joseph Johnson, uh, who, and like Jefferson Davis even, who have been graduates of West Point and are now junior officers in the Army, and they do very well. They, they do spectacularly well. Robert E. Lee, for example, uh, you know, earns three brevets for, uh, uh, which is temporary rank, is promoted three times for, for bravery during the, uh, during the Mexican War. Thomas Jackson, later Stonewall Jackson, uh, same, sim a very similar thing. Uh, he's a, also a graduate of West Point who proves himself uh, invaluable in the artillery corps during the Mexican War. All these uh, junior officers who graduated from West Point really prove that, you know, even though they don't learn a whole lot about tactics at West Point, they're, they're better prepared to lead soldiers than a political appointee or a volunteer officer, uh, which is the way the wars had always been fought before. At some point in his career, he comes back as superintendent at West Point. Can you talk a little bit about what he does, what his role is at that time? He returns to West Point, as you pointed out, in 1852 as a superintendent. He's at West Point as a superintendent from 1852 to 1855. Not much has changed. All the uh, buildings he knew when he was there had been replaced, but the curriculum is still the exact same. The discipline, the discipline regimen is still the exact same. He does not like this job as superintendent of West Point. He feels like he's pushing papers all day, and he is. He doesn't like doing all this stuff behind the desk. He wants to be out, out in the field uh, leading soldiers instead of the humdrum requesting money to build a, a writing hall, for example. He tries to make a few changes. He, one of the more amusing ones is he, he doesn't like the dress cap that the cadets wear, and so he submits a, a proposal for a new one, and uh, just because of how hard it is to change things here, that never changes. Uh, the one big change that he doesn't so much institute, but he implements, this is pushed down on him from Secretary of War Jefferson Davis at this point, is a five-year curriculum instead of the old four-year curriculum. Uh, which the cadets absolutely hate, but Robert E. Lee is is the is the one who really oversees the implementation of that. Although it's not really his his brainchild. Do but, um, any of his experiences in the Mexican American War uh, does that make him think about maybe more courses on tactics or leadership in the field? Nope, he does not try to change really the curriculum in that direction at all. He sees it as an engineering school. And he continues the tradition of very heavy engineering uh, engineering classes, classes directed towards becoming a engineer. And now moving on to the Civil War, and obviously the Mexican American War does a great deal to prepare him for that as well. But what lessons, maybe, of leadership does he bring into the Civil War? Um, I think uh, maybe the biggest thing he takes away from West Point that actually helps him become a, a, a leader during the Civil War is probably that discipline. I think he probably already had a lot of that from before he went to West Point, but certainly West Point really, really hones it for him. This idea of discipline, he learns a lot about himself, about uh, his ability to, to thrive in adversity at West Point. One of his first assignments is as a, uh, he goes down to the South Atlantic coast again and uh, supervises the building of fortifications 
down there. And, uh, in fact, he does a very good job of it. Um, again, uh, going back to that engineering skill, those engineering skills he learned at West Point. But even that, in fact, it really sort of hurts his stock, I guess you could say, because he, he's down there in, in the winter of 1861 building these fortifications. And at that time, the southern populace really wants to attack and to smite the enemy. And here's Lee building these fortifications. And he acquires more nicknames like Granny Lee or Stick in the Mud, things of that nature. And even though he does a good job, the public really doesn't see it that way. So maybe that maybe harkens back to what he learns at West Point. During the war, you have graduates on both sides of the conflict. Can you just talk a little bit about that? You're absolutely right. You do see graduates on, on both sides of the conflict. They really form a brotherhood up here at West Point. They hate West Point, and then it, it becomes the most wonderful place in the world for them. And those ties really do go beyond national boundaries during, during the Civil War. This is a war between brothers, in a sense. Culturally, they're speaking the same language, so it's not fighting a war against you know, the French or the Germans, something like that. But do you think it just gives them kind of a common frame of reference, a common set of values and ideas about what a commander is supposed to do in the field? They all have a, a very similar uh, experiences, very similar outlooks on what military service means. But even that is strained because someone like uh, Robert E. Lee, his, his sense of duty tells him that he needs to follow his state of Virginia into secession. Whereas someone like George Thomas, another Virginian, his sense of duty says he should stay with the Union. So uh, I think it's really a personal decision. Would you like to speak to Robert E. Lee's maybe strengths and weaknesses as a commander? There's a, a, a school of thought that, that's come around recently that, that's really said, Lee, he's an old-fashioned general trying to fight in a modern war. People that espouse this theory say he doesn't understand you know, the intersection of politics and the military. He's more of a Virginian than a Confederate. He's not able to see beyond the boundaries of Virginia. Even some that say he doesn't really understand the impact of technology, of the new, of the new rifle. I think those are overstated. I think he is very much a, a modern general in a mid-19th century context. He definitely understands the interplay between the political and the military. And I think we can see that with, with his uh, strategy that he implements. Um, a lot of people call it an offensive-defensive strategy. He understands the political value of winning these victories. He understands that, yes, it's going to cost us greatly in blood and in, in men to win these victories, but we have to win these victories to convince the northern populace that the war is not worth continuing. Remember, tie is as good as a win for the Confederates. So all they have to do is to convince the northern, uh, the northern people to give up, to say, all right, go your own way, we don't need you anymore. And the way to do that is to win victories. And if that requires killing a lot of soldiers in those battles, then so be it for, for Robert E. Lee. He understands that you have to win the battles. And he comes very close to winning the war for the Confederacy on, on several occasions. He's able to string together enough victories to where the uh, Europeans looking on are almost convinced that the South is going to win and maybe you know, some sort of mediation is needed between the, the South and the North. In the spring of 1864, Union morale absolutely reaches its absolute lowest point because the Overland campaign with, with Grant is just accumulating so many casualties. 
and Lee has taken a lot of casualties as well, but if he can if he can convince the North that it's not worth the cost and manpower, he can win, and he comes very close to doing so. So I really do think he does understand that interplay between battlefield and, and politics. As to the charge that he really doesn't understand technology, you know, people say, well, you know, look at Gaines Mill or uh, look at Malvern Hill or look at, at Gettysburg, the third day of Gettysburg, launching this, you know, picket Pettigrew assault on the third day of Gettysburg. How could anyone who understands the impact of modern rifles order something like that? And I think the answer to that is all Civil War generals did that at some point. Grant orders a massive frontal assault at Cold Harbor. Sherman does it at Kennesaw Mountain. It's just something that, that all Civil War generals do. And we don't read about, you know, Grant being some old-fashioned general that doesn't understand, you know, the impact of new technology. Yet, for some reason, we, we read that about Robert E. Lee. I think he's a very good tactician and a very good strategist. He really does understand this interplay between the battlefield and the politics and what it takes to win a modern war between two populations, not just between two armies. In a geopolitical sense, do you think he also has a good understanding of what it will take to get the British to recognize the South? I, th I think he does. I, th I think he realizes that we have to string together enough victories to convince the British that we can actually win this war. Or we can not, we don't even have to win it. We just have to, con we just have to convince the British that the North can't win it. And so that's why he launches these audacious campaigns into uh, first Maryland in the uh, Sharpsburg or Antietam campaign and the, a year later into Pennsylvania uh, in the uh, Gettysburg campaign. He realizes, you know, if, if I string together enough victories from the peninsula to second Manassas to Antietam and I can put together those victories, the British may step in and say, hey, this needs to stop. Or, like I said, a year later, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and then Gettysburg. Again, looking at that political objective, we need to string together enough victories to convince foreigners that the North cannot win the war. And even more important, he realizes that these foreigners are not looking at the West. A lot of times you hear, well, you know, the, the war was really won in the West. Well, that may be true, but Lee understands better than most, I think, and I think better than most modern commentators, that foreign observers, and in fact uh, the populations of both, both the North and South, are not looking at the West. They're looking at the east. They're looking at that small corridor between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, and that's their barometer to tell how the war is going. And so if Lee can keep winning victories there, it's not going to matter what happens in the West. Lee realizes this, and that's why he really tries these audacious campaigns to really string together the, these victories that he needs, perhaps regardless of, of the cost and manpower, to convince the North that the war's not worth fighting anymore, and to convince the English, and to a lesser extent the French, that the North can't win the war and that there needs to be some sort of mediation. Can you describe his relationship with Jefferson Davis? Is Jefferson Davis like a little bit of a Lincoln trying to really run the war personally, or is Lee really given a free hand to basically conduct things in the way he sees fit? As I mentioned earlier, they actually know each other from West Point. Jefferson Davis graduates a year ahead of uh, Lee. And then they uh, meet again, or perhaps not meet, but they're at least in contact with one another again when Jefferson Davis is the Secretary of War under Franklin Pierce, and Lee is the uh, superintendent of West Point. So they worked together before. Um, and Lee is a very good judge of Jefferson Davis, uh, something that most other generals in the Confederacy are not able to do very well. 
and Lee realizes that Jefferson Davis wants to be the commander-in-chief. He needs lots of information. He needs to feel like he's really having an input on what's going on in the war. And so Lee provides him this. Lee writes him almost daily status reports from the Army of Northern Virginia during his first several months in campaign, uh, or in command of the Army of Northern Virginia. But once Lee has his repertoire with Jefferson Davis, and Lee is able to, uh, to really impress his will upon Jefferson Davis. For example, in the Gettysburg campaign, Jefferson Davis is of the opinion, well, we, we really probably should send you know, at least part of the Army of Northern Virginia out to Mississippi to relieve Vicksburg. Lee argues against this and ends up being able to convince Davis that you know our best chance of success is in the East and we need to run an offensive campaign into Pennsylvania. So Robert E. Lee really does read Jefferson Davis beautifully, and he is able to provide what Jefferson Davis needs so Jefferson Davis feels like he is in control of things. Does he ever kind of lose that rapport with Jefferson Davis? Does it ever look like, you know, we might remove him from this role, or does he just make himself indispensable? After about the Battle of Second Manassas, there's absolutely no question whatsoever that Lee is going to be the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, and there's nothing that is going to change that. The Army of Northern Virginia and Robert E. Lee with its commander becomes really the single biggest national symbol for the Confederacy. And that's, that, that's why, e- even after Gettysburg, Lee asked to be relieved uh, of, of command. And Jefferson Davis said, no, we can't lose you. You have to stay in command. And, and Lee uh, agrees to, uh, to stay in command. But, but no, his stature is so high by the end of his first year in command that everyone in the Union and the Confederacy, and even in Europe, is looking at the Army of Northern Virginia to know when the war is over. That's why even when Lee surrenders the Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox in April of 1865, there's still thousands, tens of thousands of Confederates still under arms in other places of the Confederacy, but everybody sees Appomattox as the end of the war because that's the end of the Army of Northern Virginia and Robert E. Lee. Whether it's true or not, everyone sees that as... There, there's no point in resisting anymore. The, the Confederacy is dead. The Army of Northern Virginia is, is no more. How would you describe Lee's legacy in the years after the Civil War? After the Civil War, is he considered a traitor? His reputation, surprisingly, doesn't really take that much of a hit. He's never really seen as a traitor at West Point because he is this, this great captain, this honorable man, this uh, duty-bound uh, you know, marble model. You would think that he would, that you know, West Point would have problems with that, but you don't really see that. They, 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 sort of, they don't really talk about it much. Now, that people like Jefferson Davis don't have that, that aura of, of uh, great captain about them, and so they are certainly seen as uh, traitors. But people like Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee, their reputations really don't suffer all that much in the, in the North. It's sort of just sort of swept under the rug until the centennial, and now you can go and, and see we have a, a whole reconciliation walk that really emphasizes Robert E. Lee and uh, Ulysses S. Grant as two warring brothers you know, that, that come from the same place and eventually uh, are reconciled again at, at Appomattox. That's, that's, what we, that's what we see in the, in the centennial. So brothers once more. A bit heavy-handed, but yes, that, that is the, the general... Uh, consensus. In fact, even in our history department, our little recruiting poster has our motto, much of the uh, history we teach was made by those who we taught. 
And in there, we have a picture of Douglas MacArthur, Dwight Eisenhower, and Robert E. Lee. And not Robert E. Lee in a U.S. Army uniform. No, this is Robert E. Lee in a Confederate uniform. So it's an interesting dynamic of Lee's reputation here, that even though he graduated from here, and but then later turned his back on, on, on his country, even so, he still enjoys a, a very high reputation here. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Captain Ellers, for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, a military history museum and research center located in Norfolk, Virginia. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.